I don't know who needs to hear this, but we have just quietly released the first episode of our long-awaited audiobook adaption of Jane Austen's Persuasion. We've submitted it to all the usual streaming platforms, so go and search for it where you listen to podcasts to see it, to see it, to find it, to listen to it. I think that's the point. Podcasts, you don't use your eyes, you use your ears. Anyway, it's going to be available there soon, so you should go and find it um, and see if it's available yet. For more info about the podcast, visit our website, which is www.bnt.org.au. Chapter 19. The next day opened a new scene at Longbourn. Mr Collins made his declaration in form, having resolved to do it without loss of time, as his leave of absence extended only to the following Saturday, and having no feelings of diffidence to make it distressing to himself even at the moment, he set about it in a very orderly manner, with all the observances, which he supposed a regular part of the business. On finding Mrs. Bennet, Elizabeth, and one of the younger girls together soon after breakfast, he addressed the mother in these words. May I hope, madam, for your interest with your fair daughter Elizabeth, when I solicit for the honour of a private audience with her in the course of this morning? Before Elizabeth had time for anything but a blush of surprise, Mrs. Bennet answered instantly. Oh, dear! <laughs> Why, yes! Certainly. I am sure Lizzie will be very happy. I am sure she can have no objection. Come, Kitty, I want you upstairs. Kitty was quite confused. But why, Mama? Why may I not stay? Hush, Kitty, insisted Mrs. Bennet, as she hastened her younger child from the room when Elizabeth called out. Dear Madame, do not go. I beg you will not go. Mr Collins must excuse me. He can have nothing to say to me that anybody need not hear. I I am going away myself. <laughs> no, no, nonsense, Lizzie. I desire you to stay where you are. And upon Elizabeth seeming really with vexed and embarrassed looks about to escape, she added, Lizzie, I insist upon your staying and hearing Mr. Collins. Elizabeth would not oppose such an injunction, and a moment's consideration making her also sensible that it would be wisest to get it over with as soon and quietly as possible. She sat down again and tried to conceal by incessant employment the feelings which were divided between distress and diversion. Mrs. Bennet and Kitty walked off, and as soon as they were gone, Mr. Collins began. Believe me, my dear Miss Elizabeth, that your modesty, so far from doing you any disservice, rather adds to your other perfections. You would have been less amiable in my eyes had there not been this little unwillingness, but allow me to assure you that I have your respected mother's permission for this address. You can hardly doubt the purport of my discourse. However, your natural delicacy may lead you to dissemble. My attentions have been too marked to be mistaken. Almost as soon as I entered the house, I singled you out as the companion of my future life. But before I am run away with my feelings on this subject, perhaps it would be advisable for me to state my reasons for marrying, and moreover for coming to Hertfordshire with the design of selecting a wife as I certainly did.
The idea of Mr. Collins, with all his solemn composure, being run away with by his feelings, made Elizabeth so near laughing that she could not use the short pause he allowed in any attempt to stop him further, and he continued. And my reasons for marrying are, first, that I think it a right thing for every clergyman, in easy circumstances like myself, to set the example of matrimony in his parish. Secondly, that I am convinced that it will add greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, which perhaps I ought to have mentioned earlier, that it is the particular advice and recommendation of the very noble lady whom I have the honour of calling patroness. Twice has she condescended to give me her opinion, unasked too, on this subject, and it was but the very Saturday night before I left Huntsford, uh, between our pools at Quadrille, while Mrs. Jenkinson was arranging Mr. Berg's footstool, that she said, Mr. Collins, you must marry. A clergyman like you must marry. Choose properly. Choose a gentlewoman for my sake and for your own. Let her be an active, useful sort of person, not brought up high, but able to make a small income go a good way. This is my advice. Find such a woman as soon as you can, bring her to Hunsford, and I will visit her. Allow me, by the way, to observe, my fair cousin, that I do not reckon the notice and kindness of Lady Catherine de Berg as among the least of the advantages in my power to offer. You will find her manners beyond anything I can describe, and your wit and vivacity, I think, must be acceptable to her, especially when tempered with the silence and respect which her rank will inevitably excite. Thus much for my general intention in favour of matrimony. It remains to be told why my views were directed towards Longbourn instead of my own neighbourhood, where I can assure you there are many amiable young women... But the fact is that being as I am to inherit this estate after the death of your honoured father, who, however, may live many years longer, I could not satisfy myself without resolving to choose a wife from among his daughters, uh, that the loss to them might be as little as possible, uh, when the melancholy event takes place, uh, which, however, as I have already said, may not be for several years. This has been my motive, my fair cousin, and I flatter myself that it will not sink me in your esteem. And now, nothing remains for me but to assure you, in the most animated language, of the violence of my affection. To fortune, I am perfectly indifferent, and shall make no demand of that nature on your father, since I am well aware that it could not be complied with and that £1,000 in the 4%, which will not be yours till after your mother's decease, is all that you may ever be entitled to. On that head, therefore, I shall be uniformly silent, and you may assure yourself that no ungenerous reproach shall ever pass my lips when we are married. It was absolutely necessary to interrupt him now. You are too hasty, sir. You forget that I have made no answer. Let me do it without further loss of time, Accept my thanks for the compliment you are paying me. I am very sensible of the honour of your proposals, but it is impossible for me to do otherwise than to decline them. Mr Collins gave a formal wave of his hand. I am not now to learn that it is usual with young ladies to reject the addresses of the man whom they secretly mean to accept when he first applies for their favour. 
and that sometimes the refusal is repeated a second or even a third time. I am therefore by no means discouraged by what you have just said, and shall hope to lead you to the altar ere long. Upon my word, sir, your hope is a rather extraordinary one after my declaration. I do assure you that I am not one of those young ladies, if such young ladies there are, who are so daring as to risk their happiness on the chance of being asked a second time. I am perfectly serious in my refusal. You could not make me happy. And I am convinced I am the last woman in the world who would make you so. Nay, were your friend Lady Catherine to know me, I am persuaded she would find me in every respect ill-qualified for the situation. Were it certain that Lady Catherine would think so. Uh, but I cannot imagine that her ladyship would at all disapprove of you, and you may be certain when I have the honour of seeing her again, I shall speak in the very highest terms of your modesty, economy, and other amiable qualifications. Indeed, Mr Collins, all praise of me will be unnecessary. You must give me leave to judge for myself and pay me the compliment of believing what I say. I wish you very happy and very rich, and by refusing your hand, do all in my power to prevent your being otherwise. In making me the offer, you must have satisfied the delicacy of your feelings with regard to my family, and may take possession of Longbourn Estate whenever it falls, without any self-reproach. This matter may be considered, therefore, as finally settled." And rising as she thus spoke, she would have quitted the room, had Mr. Collins not addressed her thus. When I do myself the honour of speaking to you next on the subject, I shall hope to receive a more favourable answer than you have now given me, though I am far from accusing you of cruelty at present, because I know it to be the established custom of your sex to reject a man on the first application. And perhaps you have even now said as much to encourage my suit as would be consistent with the true delicacy of the female character. Really, Mr. Collins, you puzzle me exceedingly. If what I have hitherto said can appear to you in the form of encouragement, I do not know how to express my refusal in such a way as to convince you of its being one. You must give me leave to flatter myself, my dear cousin, that your refusal of my addresses is merely words of course. And my reasons for believing it are briefly these. It does not appear to me that my hand is unworthy of your acceptance, or that the establishment I can offer would be any other than highly desirable. My situation in life, my connections with the family of de Berg, and my relationship to your own are circumstances highly in my favour. And you should take it into further consideration that in spite of your manifold attractions... It is by no means certain that another offer of marriage may ever be made to you. Your portion is unhappily so small that it will in all likelihood undo the effects of your loveliness and amiable qualifications. As I must therefore conclude that you are not serious in your rejection of me, I shall choose to attribute it to your wish of increasing my love by suspense according to the usual practice of elegant females. I do assure you, sir, 
that I have no pretensions whatever to that kind of elegance, which consists in tormenting a respectable man. I would rather be paid the compliment of being believed sincere. I thank you again and again for the honour you have done me in your proposals, but to accept them is absolutely impossible. My feelings in every respect forbid it. Can I speak plainer? Do not consider me now as an elegant female intending to plague you, but as a rational creature speaking the truth from her heart. You are uniformly charming. And I am persuaded that when sanctioned by the express authority of both your excellent parents, my proposals will not fail of being acceptable. To such perseverance in willful self-deception, Elizabeth would make no reply, and immediately, and in silence, withdrew. Determined, if he persisted in considering her repeated refusals as flattering encouragement, to apply to her father whose negative might be uttered in such a manner as to be decisive, and whose behaviour, at least, could not be mistaken for the affectation and coquetry of an elegant female. Chapter 20 Mr Collins was not left long to the silent contemplation of his successful love, for Mrs Bennet, having dawdled about in the vestibule to watch for the end of the conference, no sooner saw Elizabeth open the door and with quick step pass her towards the staircase, then she entered the breakfast room and congratulated both him and herself in warm terms on the happy prospect of their nearer connection. Mr Collins received and returned these felicitations with equal pleasure and then proceeded to relate the particulars of their interview, with the result of which he trusted he had every reason to be satisfied, since the refusal which his cousin had steadfastly given him would naturally flow from her bashful modesty and the genuine delicacy of her character. This information, however, startled Mrs. Bennet. She would have been glad to be equally satisfied that her daughter had meant to encourage him by protesting against his proposals, but she dared not believe it, and could not help saying so. <laughs> but depend upon it, Mr. Collins, that Lizzie shall be brought to reason... I will speak to her about it directly. <laughs> she is a very headstrong, foolish girl and does not know her own interest. But I will make her know it. Pardon me for interrupting you, madam, but if she is really headstrong and foolish, I know not whether she would altogether be a, a very desirable wife to a man in my situation, who naturally looks for happiness in the marriage state. If, therefore, she actually persists in rejecting my suit, perhaps it were better not to force her into accepting me, because if liable to such defects of temper, she could not contribute much to my felicity. Sir, you quite misunderstand me. Lizzie is only headstrong in such matters as these. <laughs> in everything else, she is as good-natured a girl as ever lived. <laughs> I will go directly to Mr. Bennet, and we shall very soon settle it with her, I am sure. She would not give him time to reply, but hurrying instantly to her husband, called out as she entered the library. Oh, Mr. Bennet, you are wanted immediately. We are all in an uproar. 
roar, you must come and make Lizzie marry Mr. Collins. For she vows she will not have him, and if you do not make haste, he will change his mind and not have her. Mr. Bennet raised his eyes from his book as she entered and fixed them on her face with a calm unconcern, which was not the least altered by her communication. I have not the pleasure of understanding you. Of what are you talking? Of Mr. Collins and Lizzie. Lizzie declares she will not have Mr. Collins, and Mr. Collins begins to say that he will not have Lizzie. And what am I to do on the occasion, my dear? It seems a hopeless business. Speak to Lizzie about it yourself. Tell her that you insist upon her marrying him. Let her be called down. She shall hear my opinion. Mrs. Bennet rang the bell and Elizabeth was summoned to the library. Come here, child. I have sent for you on an affair of importance. I understand that Mr. Collins has made you an offer of marriage. Is it true? It is, sir. Uh, very well. And um, this offer of marriage you have refused? I have, sir. Very well. Uh, we now come to the point. Your mother insists upon your accepting it. Is it not so, Mrs. Bennet? Yes. Or I will never see her again. Uh, an unhappy alternative is before you, Elizabeth. From this day, you must be a stranger to one of your parents. Your mother will never see you again if you do not marry Mr. Collins. And I will never see you again if you do. Oh, Papa, thank you. Elizabeth could not but smile at such a conclusion for such a beginning. But Mrs. Bennet, who was persuaded herself that her husband regarded the affair as she wished, was excessively disappointed. What do you mean, Mr. Bennet, in talking this way? You promised me to insist upon her marrying him. My dear, I have two small favours to request. First, that you will allow me the free use of my understanding on the present occasion. And secondly, of my room. I shall be glad to have the library to myself as soon as may be. Not yet, however. In spite of her disappointment in her husband, did Mrs. Bennet give up the point. She talked to Elizabeth again and again, coaxing and threatening her by turns. She endeavoured to secure Jane in her interest, but Jane, with all possible mildness, declined interfering. And Elizabeth, sometimes with real earnestness and sometimes with playful gaiety, replied to her attacks. Though her manner varied, however, her determination never did. Mr Collins, meanwhile, was meditating in solitude on what had passed. He thought too well of himself to comprehend on what motives his cousin could refuse him, and though his pride was hurt, he suffered in no other way. His regard for her was quite imaginary, and the possibility of her deserving her mother's reproach prevented his feeling any regret. While the family were in this confusion, Charlotte Lucas came to spend the day with them. She was met in the vestibule by Lydia, who, flying to her, cried in a half-whisper, "'I am glad you have come!' It is such fun here. What do you think has happened this morning? <laughs> hmm. 
Mr. Collins has made an offer to Lizzie, and she will not have him. Charlotte hardly had time to answer before they were joined by Kitty, who came to tell the same news. And no sooner had they entered the breakfast room, where Mrs. Bennet was alone, than she likewise began on the subject, calling on Miss Lucas for her compassion and entreating her to persuade her friend Lizzie to comply with the wishes of all her family. Pray do, my dear Miss Lucas, for nobody is on my side. Nobody takes part with me. I am cruelly used. Nobody feels for my poor nerves. Charlotte's reply was spared by the entrance of Jane and Elizabeth. Aye, there she comes, looking as unconcerned as may be, and caring no more for us than if we were at York, provided she can have her own way. But I tell you, Miss Lizzie, if you take it into your head to go on refusing every offer of marriage in this way, you will never get a husband at all. And I'm sure I do not know who is to maintain you when your father is dead. I shall not be able to keep you, and so I warn you. I have done with you from this very day. I told you in the library, you know, that I shall never speak to you again, and you will find me as good as my word. I have no pleasure in talking to undutiful children. Not that I have much pleasure, indeed, in talking to anybody. People who suffer, as I do, from nervous complaints can have no great inclination for talking. Nobody can tell what I suffer. But it is always so. Those who do not complain are never pitied. Her daughters listened in silence to this effusion, sensible that any attempt to reason with her or soothe her would only increase the irritation she talked on therefore without interruption from any of them till they were joined by mr collins who entered the room with an air more stately than usual and on perceiving whom she said to the girls now i do insist upon it that you all of you hold your tongues and let me and mr collins have a little conversation together elizabeth passed quietly out of the room jane and kitty followed but Lydia stood her ground, determined to hear all that she could, and Charlotte, detained first by the civility of Mr. Collins, whose inquiries after herself and all her family were very minute, and then, by a little curiosity, satisfied herself with walking to the window and pretending not to hear. In a doleful voice, Mrs. Bennet began the projected conversation. Oh, Mr. Collins! My dear madam, let us be forever silent on this point. Far be it from me to resent the behaviour of your daughter. Resignation to inevitable evils is the evil duty of us all, the peculiar duty of a young man who has been so fortunate as I have been in early preferment, and I trust I am resigned. Perhaps not the less so from feeling a doubt of my positive happiness had my fair cousin honoured me with her hand, but I have often observed that resignation is never so perfect as when the blessing denied begins to lose somewhat of its value in our estimation. You will not, I hope, 
consider me as showing any disrespect to your family, my dear madam, by thus withdrawing my pretensions to your daughter's favour, uh, without having paid yourself and Mr. Bennet the compliment of requesting you to interpose your authority in my behalf. My conduct may, I fear, be objectionable in having accepted my dismission from your daughter's lips instead of your own. But we are all liable to error. I have certainly meant well through the whole affair. My object has been to secure an amiable companion for myself with due consideration for the advantage of all your family, and if my manner has been at all reprehensible, I here beg leave to apologise. Chapter 21 The discussion of Mr Collins's offer was now nearly at an end, and Elizabeth had only to suffer from the uncomfortable feelings necessarily attending it, and occasionally from some peevish allusions of her mother. As for the gentleman himself, his feelings were chiefly expressed not by embarrassment or dejection, or by trying to avoid her, but by stiffness of manner and resentful silence. He scarcely ever spoke to her, and the assiduous attentions which he had been so sensible of himself were transferred for the rest of the day to Miss Lucas, whose civility in listening to him was a seasonable relief to them all, and especially to her friend. The morrow produced no abatement of Mrs. Bennet's ill-humour or ill-health. Mr. Collins was also in the same state of angry pride. Elizabeth had hoped that his resentment might shorten his visit, but his plan did not appear in the least affected by it. He was always to have gone on Saturday, and to Saturday he meant to stay. After breakfast, the girls walked to Meryton to inquire if Mr. Wickham were returned, and to lament over his absence from the Netherfield Ball. He joined them on their entering the town, and attended them to their aunts, where his regret and vexation, and the concern of everybody, was well talked over. To Elizabeth, however, he voluntarily acknowledged that the necessity of his absence had been self-imposed. I found as the time drew near that I had better not meet Mr. Darcy, that to be in the same room, the same party with him for so many hours together, might be more than I could bear, and that scenes might arise unpleasant to more than myself. She highly approved his forbearance, and they had leisure for a full discussion of it, and for all the commendation which they civilly bestowed on each other as Wickham and another officer walked back with them to Longbourn, and during the walk he particularly attended to her. His accompanying them was a double advantage. She felt all the compliment it offered to herself, and it was most acceptable as an occasion of introducing him to her mother and father. Soon after their return, Mrs Hill entered the sitting-room to find Jane. This came for your mum. Just now, from Netherfield. The envelope contained a sheet of elegant, little, hot-pressed paper, well covered with a lady's fair, flowing hand, and Elizabeth saw her sister's countenance change as she read it, and saw her dwelling intently on some particular passages. Jane recollected herself soon, and putting the letter away, tried to join with her usual cheerfulness in the general conversation. But Elizabeth felt an anxiety on the subject which drew off her attention even from Wickham, and no sooner had he and his companion taken leave than a glance from Jane invited her to follow her upstairs. When they had gained their own room, Jane, taking out the letter, said, This is from Caroline Bingley. 
and what it contains has surprised me a good deal. The whole party have left Netherfield by this time and are on their way to town, and without any intention of coming back again. You shall hear what she says. She then read the first sentence aloud, which comprised the information of their having just resolved to follow their brother to town directly, and of their meaning to dine in Grosvenor Street, where Mr Hurst had a house. The next was in these words. I do not pretend to regret anything I shall leave in Hertfordshire, except your society, my dearest friend. But we will hope, at some future period, to enjoy many returns of that delightful intercourse we have known, and in the meanwhile may lessen the pain of separation by a very frequent and most unreserved correspondence. I depend on you for that. To these high-flown expressions, Elizabeth listened with all the insensibility of distrust, and though the suddenness of their removal surprised her, she saw nothing in it really to lament. It was not to be supposed that their absence from Netherfield would prevent Mr Bingley's being there, and as to the loss of their society, she was persuaded that Jane must cease to regard it in the enjoyment of his. It is unlucky that you should not be able to see your friends before they leave the country. But may we not hope that the period of future happiness to which Miss Bingley looks forward may arrive earlier than she is aware, and that the delightful intercourse you have known as friends will be renewed with yet greater satisfaction as sisters. Mr Bingley will not be detained in London by them. Caroline decidedly says that none of the party will return into Hertfordshire this winter. I will read it to you. When my brother left us yesterday, he imagined that the business which took him to London might be concluded in three or four days, but as we are certain it cannot be so, and at the same time convinced that when Charles gets to town he will be in no hurry to leave it again, we have determined on following him thither, that he may not be obliged to spend his vacant hours in a comfortless hotel. Many of my acquaintances are already there for the winter. I wish that I could hear that you, my dearest friend, had any intention of making one of the crowd. But of that I despair. I sincerely hope your Christmas in Hertfordshire may abound in the gaieties which that season generally brings, and that your bows will be so numerous as to prevent your feeling the loss of the three of whom we shall deprive you. It is evident by this that he comes back no more this winter. It is only evident that Miss Bingley does not mean that he should. Why will you think so, Lizzie? It must be his own doing. He is his own master. But you do not know all. I will read you the passage which particularly hurts me. I will have no reserves from you. Mr Darcy is impatient to see his sister and to confess the truth. We are scarcely less eager to meet her again. I really do not think Georgiana Darcy has her equal in beauty, elegance and accomplishments. And the affection she inspires in Louisa and myself is heightened into something still more 
interesting from the hope we dare entertain of her being hereafter our sister. I do not know whether I ever before mentioned to you my feelings on this subject, but I will not leave the country without confiding them and I trust you will not esteem them unreasonable. My brother admires her greatly already. He will have frequent opportunity now of seeing her on the most intimate footing. Her relations all wish the connection as much as his own, and a sister's partiality is not misleading me, I think, when I call Charles most capable of engaging any woman's heart. With all these circumstances to favour an attachment and nothing to prevent it, am I wrong, my dearest Jane, in indulging the hope of an event which will secure the happiness of so many? What do you think of this sentence, my dear Lizzie? Is it not clear enough? Does it not expressly declare that Caroline neither expects nor wishes me to be her sister, that she is perfectly convinced of her brother's indifference, and that if she suspects the nature of my feelings for him, she means most kindly to put me on my guard? Can there be any other opinion on the subject? Yes, there can, for mine is totally different. Will you hear it? Most willingly. You shall have it. In a few words, Miss Bingley sees that her brother is in love with you, but wants him to marry Georgiana Darcy. She follows him to town in the hope of keeping him there and tries to persuade you that he does not care about you. Oh, Lizzie, I don't know. Indeed, Jane, you ought to believe me. No one who has seen you together can doubt his affection. Miss Bingley, I am sure, cannot. She is not such a simpleton. Could she have seen half as much love in Mr. Darcy for herself, she would have ordered her wedding clothes and the cake. <laughs> but the case is this. We are not rich enough, nor grand enough for them. And she is the more anxious to get Miss Darcy for her brother from the notion that when there has been one intermarriage she may have less trouble in achieving a second, in which there is certainly some ingenuity, <laughs> and I dare say it would succeed if Mr. Berg were out of the way. <laughs> but, oh, my dearest Jane, you cannot seriously imagine that because Miss Bingley tells you her brother greatly admires Miss Darcy, he is in the smallest degree less sensible of your merit than when he took leave of you on Tuesday, or that it will be in her power to persuade him that instead of being in love with you, he is very much in love with her friend. No. If we thought alike of Miss Bingley, your representations of all this might make me quite easy. But I know the foundation is unjust. Caroline is incapable of willfully deceiving anyone. And all that I can hope in this case is that she is deceiving herself. You could not have started a more happy idea. Since you will not take comfort in mine, believe her to be deceived, by all means. You have now done your duty by her and must fret no longer. But, my dear sister, 
Can I be happy, even supposing the best, in accepting a man whose sisters and friends are all wishing him to marry elsewhere? You must decide for yourself, Jane. And if, upon mature deliberation, you find that the misery of disobliging his two sisters is more than equivalent to the happiness of being his wife, well, I advise you by all means to refuse him. <laughs> So, you must know that though I should be exceedingly grieved at their disapprobation, I could not hesitate. I did not think you would, and that being the case, I cannot consider your situation with much compassion. <laughs> but if he returns no more this winter, my choice will never be required. A thousand things may arise in six months. The idea of his returning no more, Elizabeth treated with the utmost contempt. It appeared to her merely a suggestion of Caroline's interested wishes, and she could not for a moment suppose that those wishes, however openly or artfully spoken, could influence a young man so totally independent of everyone. She represented to her sister as forcibly as possible what she felt on the subject, and, had soon the pleasure of seeing its happy effect. Jane's temper was not desponding, and she was gradually led to hope, though the diffidence of affection sometimes overcame the hope, that Bingley would return to Netherfield and answer every wish of her heart. They agreed that Mrs. Bennet should only hear of the departure of the family, without being alarmed on the score of the gentleman's conduct. But even this partial communication gave her a great deal of concern, and she bewailed it as exceedingly unlucky that the ladies should happen to go away just as they were all getting so intimate together. After lamenting it, however, at some length, she had the consolation that Mr Bingley should soon be down again and soon dining at Longbourn. And the conclusion of all was the comfortable declaration that though he had been invited only to a family dinner, that she would take care to have two full courses. Loving the podcast so far? You can help us keep it running by becoming a member of our little company for as little as 25 Australian dollars a year. That money helps us buy fancy things, like this magnificent background music. Check out bnt.org.au for details on how to join up. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ballarat National Theatre's adaptation of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. This production is directed by Liana Skews, narrated by Olivia French, and adapted for audio by Elizabeth Bradford, Olivia French, and Liana Skews. This episode features the voices of Olivia French as Elizabeth Bennett, Shannon Nichols as Mr. Collins, Liz Hardman as Mrs. Bennett, Amelia Pawsey as Kitty Bennett. Chris Hiscock as Mr. Bennett, Daisy Kennington as Lydia Bennett, Elliot Gale as Mr. Wickham, Emma Wood 
as Mrs. Hill, Liana Skews as Jane Bennett, and Marley Vanderbale as Caroline Bingley. The production team would like to thank Jacqueline Cleverly for her help with dialect advice, and this podcast was produced by Ballarat National Theatre on the lands of our traditional custodians, the Wathorong people. Cast recordings were made in the lands of the Wathorong, Wurundjeri, and Jaja Wurrung, and Boon Wurrung people. Ballarat National Theatre acknowledges and pays respect to our traditional custodians and to their past, present and emerging leaders.